Let's open God's Word again, this time to the Old Testament, the book of Micah. Might take us a while to find that. It's in the Minor Prophets. You open your Bible about halfway and start going to the right, you'll come across the Minor Prophets and then um, eventually find Micah. Micah chapter 5. If you hit Nahum, you've gone too far. If you hit Jonah, you haven't gone far enough. We want to talk today and look in the Scripture about the humble and divine King. This is a time of year where we think about the king. We think about him as a baby. We think about his birth. I'm glad that the world wants to think about that, talk about that, consider what it means to have the Savior come to the world. But the Bible has a lot more to say about Christ. And sometimes even the birth itself, I don't think the world understands what it means. And God's big scheme, what it means to the believer, what it means to God's people. Micah chapter 5 verse 2. It's one of the most popular Christmas verses. It's like a diamond that stands out amongst other jewels. And I just want to read, starting in verse 1, I'll read through verse the first part of verse 5, just to give you the context. Whenever we go through books of the Bible here, which is what we normally do, uh, we like to get the context. And here I'm just taking one verse, and so I want to give you the surrounding verses so you can see what's happening as Micah prophesies The words of the Lord. Micah chapter 5, starting in verse 1. Now, muster yourselves in troops, daughter of troops. They have laid siege against us. With a rod they will smite the judge of Israel on the cheek. But as for you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you, one will go forth for me to be ruler in Israel. His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. Therefore, he will give them up until the time when she who is in labor has borne a child. Then the remainder of his brethren will turn to the sons of Israel, and he will arise and shepherd his flock. In the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they will remain, because at that time he will be great to the ends of the earth. This one will be our peace. That's obvious. That's talking about the Messiah. Maybe we've heard Micah 5.2 and read about it in in Matthew chapter 2, where Matthew cites this. And we've read it so much that we don't dig into the text itself in Micah and see how many wonderful prophecies that God has for us here. We ought to go to the Old Testament and study more about Christ. In the passage that we read in the scripture reading, Matthew chapter 2, you remember the Magi were coming from the east, and they were looking for this new king. They had seen his star back when they were in the east, a couple of years previous, and they had come and followed the star looking for this king. They go up to the capital city of the area, Jerusalem, and they start asking around. Certainly the people know that a king has been born, right? the biggest city in the area, the holy city. They would have come into the city and seen the temple. And they would have said, these people must know who their king is and where he has been born. But no one knew. Finally, the king at the time, the usurper, King Herod, he got upset. He wanted to know where this king had been born, this upstart, this one who might overthrow his power. So he asked around. He asked the chief priests. He asked the scribes, do your research. Find out what you know from the Old Testament. And they did. They found Micah 
chapter 5, verse 2. They reported back to the king because this passage is so clear. It's so clear where he's going to be born, who he is, what he's going to do. But they told the king. The king tells the magi. The magi continue on their way. God reveals so much in the Old Testament about the Messiah. That's why people could be saved in the Old Testament. Because they could trust in the promises of God that pointed to Christ. That pointed to the Messiah. Even now we have all the Old Testament. We have all the New Testament. And still people don't see Him. People don't truly see Him. Sometimes we wonder, how could the Jews of Jesus' day not recognize Him as the Christ, as the promised one? How do people today not recognize Christ? How can they celebrate Christmas and yet not see that this is the Lord and Savior, the one that we should worship, the one who can save us? But God has put hints all over the Bible. And sometimes it's not even a hint. It's just a clear prophecy of the one to come. So today we want to look at this passage and see what we can learn about this king. What can we learn about this Messiah, the one who is promised to Israel? And even it says in the text that I read here, for all the earth, to the ends of the earth, he will be great and he will be our peace. Just in this one verse, Micah 5, 2, we're going to see three aspects of the promised Messiah. There's three things God put here in the mouth of Micah to tell Israel to write down so that we could all see it about this Messiah. First of all, his humble humanity. His humble humanity. This Messiah, this Christ will be born under humble means. A lowly place in in man's mind, but a high place in God's plan. You see, the Magi came to the greatest, wealthiest city in the area. A beautiful temple that Herod had enlarged and built. And you could see it from a distance and it was shining and it was white and it was gorgeous and the city was on a hill. That's not where the king was. The king was born in a humble place. Look at verse 2 here at the very beginning. He says, but as for you, this is God the Father speaking, as for you, So God is speaking to his people who are under the siege of the Babylonians in Jerusalem. Micah's prophesying that. They're going to come under siege. And this is Judah, the southern part of the once great nation of Israel. They had sinned greatly. They had worshipped false gods. They had turned to their own sinful ways. They had mistreated people. The book of Micah is about the judgment that's going to come on them for their unrighteousness. They had not worshipped God at all. They had turned to false gods and mistreated all the people of the city and of the country, Judah. And God's going to punish. You see, even with Christmas, we have a message of God's wrath. You heard it in one of the testimonies today. God will judge sin. God is holy. God is righteous. He cannot just look away and hear his own special nation. And not just nation, but city. Where his temple is. Where his Ark of the Covenant is. And God's going to bring judgment upon them. And we saw that back in verse 1. Now muster yourselves and troops, daughters of troops. They have laid siege against us. So Micah's saying, here's what's going to happen. Go all the way back to chapter 3 though. Of this book. And look at verse 9. Micah 3, 9. We get a little more context of what's going on here. And why God is bringing judgment. 
Now hear this, heads of the house of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel, who abhor justice, who twist everything that is straight, who build Zion with bloodshed and Jerusalem with violent injustice. Her leaders pronounce judgment for a bribe, her priests instruct for a price, and her prophets divine for money. Yet they lean on the Lord, saying, Is not the Lord in our midst? Calamity will not come upon us. Therefore, on account of you, Zion, will be plowed as a field. Jerusalem will become a heap of runs, and the mountain of the temple will become high places of a forest. God's going to bring an army. He's going to bring a judgment through the Babylonians. They're going to destroy the city. People will be taken away into exile. The city will be wiped out. He says it's going to be ruins. And so Micah's going back and forth in chapter 4, telling about that, telling about the city. He comes to Really in Hebrew, what's the end of chapter 4, but our chapter 5, verse 1. And then there's a change in verse 2. But. But. There's a contrast. But God's going to do something. There's going to be a siege. There's going to be a destruction. But in the future, is the context here, God's going to do something. Yes, Israel will be punished for their sin. But God's going to do something for them in the future. He's going to save them, is how we would say it in the New Testament. But here in Micah, he's pointing to the Savior himself. God is going to bring the Messiah into the world in a very unsuspecting place. So he personifies that place, this little town, and he speaks to the town. As for you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah. It's the only place in the Old Testament you're going to see the actual town named where the Messiah would be born. It's why those chief priests that Herod got to do their research in the Bible, they could only find this one verse because that's it. The only prophecy of Messiah's birthplace. Little village, about five to six miles southwest of Jerusalem. It's where they would raise the sheep for sacrifices. A very fertile area with lots of grain being produced. In fact, the name of the city, Beth Lechem, is house of bread in Hebrew. It was a very rich region. Isn't God a masterful author, though? Think about it. The house of bread, and from there comes, Jesus will call himself the bread of life. God weaves all of these words together in old and new to make a beautiful picture. But Micah goes further, and he specifies that it's Bethlehem Ephrathah. Ephrathah. Not an easy word to say in English, but it's an older name for Bethlehem. It's an older name for the region surrounding Bethlehem. Eventually, it becomes equal to the city itself as far as another name for it. This extra name, though, it's added here to differentiate it from another village. There's another Bethlehem in the north, in Galilee. And so God wants to be specific. This isn't just a general prophecy. This is very, very specific. In fact, Dr. Will Varner, who wrote a a little short write-up on this, says, I like to say that when the Lord provided the address for the town where Messiah would be born, he also provided the zip code. Very specific. And this area and this town, and it's in Judah. This is how the chief priest could find where the Messiah would be born. And God goes on. He talks about this town. He's saying, you're too little to be among the clans of Judah. Originally, clans were extended family members that came from a tribe. You got about a thousand men from the tribe that made up a clan. And these clans are listed in Joshua 15 and Nehemiah 11, along with the cities that were part of 
their clan. But the one that settled around Bethlehem, either they didn't get a good start with their numbers or in time it declined because it's not even big enough to be listed in Joshua or Nehemiah. It's insignificant. It doesn't have a real priority of place for the tribe of Judah or the clans of Judah. It's a small, out-of-the-way place. Yes, it's right near Jerusalem, but nobody really goes there for any specific reason other than the people who live there. Now, Bethlehem does have a past in the Bible, though. It might be small to the average Jew, insignificant to the clans, but yet God had been doing things there from the very beginning. Jacob, one of the forefathers of Israel, buried his wife there, Rachel. Genesis 35, 19. So Rachel died and was buried on the way to Ephrath. And then in parentheses, Moses says, that is Bethlehem. Ruth 1 tells us that Naomi and her husband Elimelech were Ephrathites of Bethlehem in Judah before they had to leave because of the famine. Then later in Ruth, Boaz has a little field where Ruth comes to glean. And where is that? In Bethlehem, right outside. And in fact, when Boaz is going to marry Ruth, the elders of the town say, may you achieve wealth in Ephrathah and become famous in Bethlehem. Now, Boaz and Ruth had a son named Obed. And Obed had a son named Jesse, and Jesse was the father of King David. So God eventually sends the prophet Samuel there to anoint David in Bethlehem. And here's what he says in 1 Samuel 17, 12. Now David was the son of the Ephrathite of Bethlehem in Judah, whose name was Jesse. So just by saying he's going to be born there, they're connecting him. Micah and the other prophets are connecting him with David, connecting him with the Davidic line. The Messiah would come from Bethlehem. And everyone at the time knew it, but they missed the fact that Jesus himself had been born there. They were confused. And I think God hid this so that they wouldn't see the truth. Go over to John, the Gospel of John, in chapter 7. And you'll see how even the common people knew the Messiah was going to be born in Bethlehem. Gospel of John chapter 7, starting in verse 40. The Pharisees had been challenging Jesus. People were starting to question who this man was. Who was it that could do this sort of miracle? These wonderful things? Who could it be? Is it it the Messiah? Is it the promised one? And so we get to verse 40 of chapter 7. Some of the people, therefore, when they heard these words, were saying, this certainly is the prophet. The prophet that Moses had said would come. There would be a prophet greater than Moses who would come. Others were saying, this is the Christ, the Messiah. Still others were saying, surely the Christ, the Messiah, is not going to come from Galilee, is he? Because they knew that's where Jesus had lived. Before he came down and ministered around Jerusalem, he had come from Galilee. That's where he grew up. Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the descendants of David? And from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So a division occurred in the crowd because of him. Some of them wanted to seize him, but no one laid hands on him. You see, they didn't understand that Jesus had been born in Bethlehem. But nobody really knew it other than the shepherds, other than the magi, other than his family. And everyone just went on with their life. He went down to Egypt with his parents, and eventually they came back and went to Galilee, to Nazareth. Even today, Jews look at this passage in Micah 5.2 and they agree that is telling us where the Messiah will be born. A 
The problem is they missed it the first time. They don't realize he's already come. There's not a time now where we need to wait for him to come the first time. He's already come the first time. We're just waiting for his second coming. Well, the great and mighty city of Jerusalem is in trouble. It's being sieged soon after Micah's day. Enemies are besieging and attacking it. Yet hope is not going to come from the city itself. Hope is going to come from this little, small, poor town. Speaks of the humanity that the Messiah would have. This is not the type of place that the first king of Israel, David, would come from, is it? But that's what God did. He did choose David from this little town. And people would say, this is not the place that we would pick for the Messiah to come, is it? No, it's nothing. It's a little town in a field. And yet, here we have God orchestrating this. So much so that 2,000 years later, what do we sing about? O little town of Bethlehem. Millions today, this week, will sing that song. In fact, I looked up just the word Bethlehem on this website that will tell you if it's mentioned in any lyrics. I didn't get the number of songs, but it must be in the hundreds because 1,924 times Bethlehem is mentioned in old and new Christmas songs. Insignificant. And yet look at what God has done. Add this to the fact that Jesus is born in a room full of barn animals, likely. His birth was announced by lowly shepherds. Look at how God is choosing the weak and lifting them up. And God is humbling and shaming the proud. The proud who thought they knew all things, who thought they knew that Jesus should come to Jerusalem and announce himself when he was born. That's not what happened, is it? God had a plan. God had a specific plan. And he brought the Messiah to this earth to be fully man, to come from a lowly place. Well, number two, let's look at number two in this verse, the second aspect of Christ, his sovereign reign. So he's born in a small town. He's born in a place that no one would expect. But he's going to be one that rules, that reigns. He's going to reign over the whole earth, doing the will of God the Father. Micah goes on and says, From you, one will go forth for me to be ruler in Israel. A ruler's coming out of this little town. He's going to rule over Israel. He's going to rule over the earth. And even though the word king is not mentioned here, the fact that it says ruler is pretty much synonymous with a king. He is going to be a ruler. This matches what David was promised, 2 Samuel 7. Remember when uh, David was going to build the temple and a prophet comes to him and says, God is speaking here. Now, therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, to be ruler over my people Israel. David was the ideal king. Even today, if you talk to Jews, who was the best king who ever lived, according to them? They would say David. He wrote Psalms. He was blessed. Israel expanded. It had the greatest reach under David and Solomon that it would ever have. And yet there's one coming that's greater than David. There's one who did come that's greater than David. He is to be ruler over God's people, Israel. Jeremiah 30, 21 says their leader shall be one of them. He's not going to come from an outside nation. He's not going to just zoom in from the clouds and be some other type of being. No, he's going to come from them. He's going to be a ruler from among them. Jeremiah says, their ruler shall come forth from their midst. 
and I will bring him near and he shall approach me. What kind of human could approach God? And God says right there, for who would dare to risk his life to approach me, declares the Lord. Already seeing a a contrast here. We have a human ruler who's going to come out of their midst, but he can approach God. Even God says that doesn't happen. And yet it does. It does. When Christ came forth from the womb, he was already king over Israel. We don't stop and really think about that. He was already king when he came out. We just pass on by that. Charles Spurgeon really brings this out, though. He says, very few have ever been born king. Men are born princes, but they are seldom born kings. I do not think you can find an instance in history where any infant was born king. The moment he came on earth, Jesus was a king. He did not wait till he grew up that he might take his empire. But as soon as his eye greeted the sunshine, he was king. From the moment that his little hands grasped anything, they grasped a scepter. As soon as his pulse beat and his blood began to flow, his heart beat royally and his pulse beat an imperial measure and his blood flowed in a kingly current. He was born a king. Everyone else has to wait until the father dies, they can become king. Or they have to wait until they get a majority that can vote them in. Not Jesus. He didn't need man's approval to be king. God is saying right here, from you, one will go forth for me to be ruler in Israel. He was born a king. And look how God says, for me. He's going to go for God. It's a little phrase, for me. It's only two letters in Hebrew. It's something that I overlooked in translating. I mean, I translated it, but then I started studying more and saw he's going for God. This is God's king. Not just one chosen by God like David, but actually one coming from God, going to Israel and doing the will of God. That's what it means for me. He's not going to go his own way. He's not going to stumble and fall like Solomon, like David did. He's not going to be like so many of the kings of Israel. This will be a king who finally acts on God's behalf. One who does the will of the Father, the will of God. Hebrews 10, 7 quotes from the Psalms about the Messiah. Then I said, behold, I have come in the scroll of the book that is written to me to do your will. We can't perfectly do God's will. If you're a Christian here today, you struggle every day just to do God's will. And yet here's one that's going to come that will perfectly do God's will. Every second of his life lived was in the will of God. He never sinned. And he said this in his high priestly prayer, John 17, I glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work which you have given to me. This is the perfect king. No more corruption in government. No more corruption in elections. No more unrighteousness. No more persecuting Christians. Telling them when they can worship, when they can't worship. This king is going to rule over the whole earth. And it's going to be over the throne of David. That means it's upon the earth. It's not just Christ ruling in heaven. But it's Christ upon the earth. Go back to Micah chapter 4 verse 1. Even before we get to chapter 5 of Micah, he's already pointing us towards this coming king. He says, and it will come about in the last days. That's speaking of the end times, the last days. That the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief of mountains. 
It will be raised above the hills, and the people will stream to it. Jerusalem is going to be raised up. It's going to be the highest mountain, and people will stream to it. Why? Because the king is there. Because they come to worship God. They come to worship the Messiah. They come to be part of the kingdom of God. The king will rule from there. This lines up with the literal reign of Christ. The same thing that's mentioned at the end of the Bible in Revelation 20. A thousand year reign of Christ. He's reigning over the actual throne of David from Jerusalem. It not only points us to the birth of Christ, Micah does, but he also points us to the future coming of Christ to reign over the earth. He is our sovereign king. And then lastly, this passage tells us about his majestic divinity. How could a man that's called a king approach God? Because he himself is divine. He himself is God. While Christ is fully man and he will reign upon the earth, he's also fully God. He is the God man. His goings forth, Micah says, his goings forth, or your Bible might say origins. It's really better translated goings forth are from long ago. Now that should challenge anybody as you're slowing down to really think about that passage. He's going to be born in the future in this little town that nobody really cares about. But his goings forth are from long ago. Is that a contradiction? How does that work? And again, we're we're starting to see a picture of fully human, fully God. His goings forth are from long ago. This refers to his activity before he showed up in Bethlehem. He was going out doing things long before he showed up in Bethlehem. It's all the numerous appearances of Christ before his incarnation. All those times that Christ showed up in the Old Testament, but he wasn't named Jesus at that time. It was just the angel of the Lord. Or sometimes the angel of Yahweh, the angel of God, or just God. When people saw visions of God, the New Testament indicates that that wasn't the Father, but the Son. The angel of the Lord appeared over and over in the Old Testament. Abraham sat and had a meal with the angel of the Lord before Sodom was destroyed. Jacob Jacob wrestled with God. That was the pre-incarnate Christ. Moses at the burning bush says in one verse that he's speaking with God, and in the next verse he's speaking with the angel of the Lord. So many times in the book of Judges, Isaiah sees a vision in the temple, and John, the Gospel of John, tells us that was Christ. Isaiah 6, he saw the Lord Christ. Daniel had a vision of God. Even the pagan king at the time, Nebuchadnezzar, said he saw one like the Son of God in the fiery furnace. His going forth go way back before Bethlehem, before Micah's time. Hundreds, thousands of years. Now, Christ is all over the place suddenly in the Old Testament when you realize that. Just an interpretive issue for a second. We we have people sometimes who want to turn over every word in the Old Testament and see if Jesus is under that word. Let's twist this passage and see if we can find Jesus. We don't have to do that because he's already all over the place. It's not the word, but it's the book or maybe the chapter. But he is all over the place, showing up here, showing up there. If not directly, then indirectly prophecies are all over the place. So there's no need to twist or turn over words. Let's just see Christ for who he is and what the Bible has to say about him. 
But Micah doesn't stop there. Not only did he go out and do things long ago, but he's from the days of eternity. This takes us even further back, outside of time, before time was created. Not only has the Messiah been active in ancient days of Israel's forefathers, but he comes from eternity past. He's fully God and he's fully man. And we see the proof right here of his divinity. Charles Feinberg, who wrote a commentary on the Minor Prophets, says that the phrases of this text are the strongest possible statement of infinite duration in the Hebrew language. If you want to say somebody is from eternity, this is the way you say it in Hebrew. Some scholars look at this and say, no, it's not talking about eternity. That's what the word means. And that's the indication here. This is speaking of his pre-existence, his divinity. Jesus is God. You know, a lot of people don't have a problem with just Jesus in general. Jesus the man, Jesus the prophet. Even Muslims believe that Jesus was a prophet. Jehovah's Witnesses believe that Jesus was a specially gifted person. It's when you say Jesus is God that really challenges all other religions. Jesus is God. He is divine. Psalm 93.2 speaks the same language here in Hebrew. Your throne is established from of old. You are from everlasting. How can you come from a place that doesn't really have a point in time? We don't know. We can't understand it. This is the best that our language will convey to us. He comes from eternity. He is pre-existent before creation. You know, Micah prophesied along with the Isaiah. They were around the same time. Isaiah was in the city in Jerusalem. Micah was off in the country prophesying. And just before Micah wrote, Isaiah wrote his book. And Joey read to you that passage on the Messiah. A child will be born to us. A son will be given to us. That's his first coming. Then it speaks here of a second coming after that. The government will rest on his shoulders. His name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God. There's one thing as a Jew you never do. You never call someone God that's not God. Because that would end in stoning. That would end in death. And here's Isaiah saying, a child's going to be born and he's going to be called God. So again, we have humanity, divinity, and he's going to be king. Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace. He's speaking here of the future reign of Christ on the throne of David over his kingdom to establish it, to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. The fact that Christ comes from eternity tells us without a doubt he's fully God. There is no doubt. People can change their translations. They can try to say and do what they want with that. Liberals can say that Christ isn't God, but he is. We know that he is because we see it in the scriptures over and over and over. He's going to be the perfect king. He's going to, to reign sovereignly. He is the God-man. It's why the Apostle Paul could write to the Colossians and say, In Christ, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. Now, Micah prophesied these words eight centuries before the birth of Jesus in Bethlehem. They had 800 years to get this in their heads and know and look forward to it. And they did. 
You hear from the discussions just among the crowd that they're wondering who Jesus is and knowing that the Messiah must come from Bethlehem. And yet here he came. Hardly anyone recognized him. Even when they saw the miracles from him, they wouldn't believe and follow him. He was crucified. He was raised again. You know, so many people want to keep Jesus in the manger. It's fun to have Jesus in the manger at Christmas time. But where are we a few months from now when we remember and specifically focus on the cross and the resurrection? Which we should think about every Lord's Day and every day in our life. He didn't stay in the manger. He grew up. He lived a perfect life. He died on the cross for sinners. He was raised on the third day. He ascended to sit at the right hand of the Father. He's coming back to judge the earth. He's coming back to reign. Don't keep Jesus in the manger. Don't just think of that at Christmas. Think of all the things of Christ. Micah's message gave them hope back then. They had hope. When they considered his humble humanity, his sovereign reign, his majestic divinity, they were looking forward to that. And even though Christ has already come and done the work of salvation, we as believers still look forward to his second coming. We look forward to these things being lived out upon the earth. This perfect peace that's described after verse 2 in this chapter. He's coming back. He's coming back. And that celebration is going to be very public. Not like his birth. It was very quiet. Very few people knew. When he returns, when he comes the second time, it's going to be very public. Everyone will either celebrate and join him in eternal life or be judged. So this Christmas, you need to think about that. Where do you stand with the Lord Jesus Christ? Can you truly celebrate Christmas thinking about being with him in eternity forever and ever? Would you rejoice if he came today and you got to see him? Or do you need to turn to him in faith? Confess your sins. Trust in him for salvation alone. That's what we should consider this Christmas. That's what we should share with others. That's what we should be thinking about. Yes, he was born in a little out-of-the-way place. But when he comes back, there's going to be a shout. There's going to be a trumpet. Everyone will know. There's going to be a great battle. Are you ready? I pray that you are. Lord, we do bow before you and think of your wisdom. As you put these things in the Old Testament, you help us to learn. Even though we know that Christ has come as believers, we can look back, we can learn. We can see maybe what we've missed as we've come through the Old Testament too fast. The Magi were looking for this, this king. I pray that we would look for this king. If we're believers this morning, that we would always search to be with Christ more and more in the scriptures. For those who are not saved among us, Lord, I pray that they might bow the knee. Bow the knee to this sovereign king who can save them who can redeem them from their sin, the guilt of their sin, as we heard about today in these testimonies. Lord, save someone here in this room this Christmas. Wouldn't that be great, Lord, for us to rejoice once again that you save sinners. I pray that that would be the case. Let everything we do honor you. And may we always be thinking of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his name, amen.